You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. One year out from the COVID market bottom, narrative-driven trading and salience, and the quantitative indicator, the NOPE index. Lily, welcome back to Real Vision. Welcome back to the Daily Briefing. Thank you. Glad to be back. You know, you're here on quite a day. This is the 12-month anniversary of the post-COVID market bottom. The S&P 500 went on to drop 34% from peak. And now, since then, since 12 months ago, uh, we are up on the Dow, 74% up on the S&P, 74%. And the NASDAQ up almost 93%, nearly doubling. What could go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Lily, take us through your view of this market. I know it's something you've been thinking about and writing about. I mean, since last year, we've seen a lot of liquidity pumped in by the Federal Reserve, um, you know, both through the actions of, you know, quantitative easing, as well as government actions like the two stimulus bills, the one that just recently passed. And historically, that has a tendency when you have this unbridled liquidity in the market to cause asset bubbles. We've heard recently from the Federal Reserve that they're pretty comfortable with inflation. They're also pretty comfortable, for instance, not extending SLR. We had recently the bond tantrum where yields spike, now yields are back down. So the market really seems lately on edge. Um, you know, you're actually coming on the quarter of or the corner of the quarterly rebound as well, too. Right. And essentially we're dealing with some pretty massive asset bubbles that may or may not pop. It's really, it's super easy to call it a bubble, you know, when you're in there, but predicting, you know, when it's going to be the end of it, I would say is more of a fool's game. You know, exactly, Lily, to your point, everyone seems to be getting into the stimulus game. Uh, Congress with fiscal stimulus, you've got the Fed liquidity, uh, the balance sheet now at $7.7 .7 trillion, interest rates still near the zero lower bound, you've got the 13-3 programs. And as you mentioned, uh, the um, the things that are happening with things like uh, SLRs, which are, of course, supplementary leverage ratios. Yeah. And I mean, it really seems like a game. I mean, the, the driving force here is there is no alternative. You know, you're seeing this dance between various sectors. So the reflation play, which was oil and all these other, you know, quote unquote, boomer stocks, as some people in my generation like to call them. You see this rotation to tech from tech with the COVID reopening and really what is happening if you had to pin one major, you know, factor here is that there's a lot of money in the system and it's looking right. for a place to go with these, you know, and it's driving these speculative bubbles. Right. Yeah, you know, um, absolutely. And there's a lot of complexity. You talk about the reopening trade. Uh, here we are today going back into lockdown in Europe with the third wave, airline stocks getting hammered, uh, and even the SLRs that we mentioned earlier are actually moving in the opposite direction, the tightening uh, direction with the Fed not renewing uh, some of those uh, emergency 
leverage uh, measures effectively allowing banks not to include uh, their deposits and treasuries in their risk-weighted asset calculations. But tell us a little bit more about the boomer stocks. And obviously, this is something that gets into uh, your area of expertise, which is the opposite of boomer stocks, narrative-driven trading and salience. Tell us first about the boomer stocks, how you see that world, and then let's talk about uh, the narrative trades. So the quote-unquote boomer stocks, for instance, oil, which was heavily beaten down last year, it's a pretty natural occurrence that we're seeing a rotation into here because, you know, as we're seeing this reopening coupled with, let's say, short covering and portfolio rebalancing, really a lot of people in late 2020 were speculating that the next big thing in 2021 would be this rotation back to value. So you're seeing, you know, you saw until pretty recently, this dramatic spike in oil, in existing, you know, REITs, um, all these kind of beaten down stuff that were pretty neglected during the COVID pandemic, because unlike, for instance, technology, which either didn't really get impacted by the lockdowns or actually in a lot of cases like Zoom benefited from it. These stocks in particular were hammered because, you know, they weren't essentially functional companies during the pandemic. And now that the tech stocks not only are being hammered by these increasing bond yields, but also have reached these valuations where a lot of investors are not comfortable with, we're seeing this dramatic rotation back into the value stocks. It is interesting to see, uh, and then today this weird counter narrative that's happening with the uh, lockdowns going on in Europe, where you sort of have uh, the va- rotation away from uh, away from value because of that. But that brings us uh, to the thing that you are perhaps best known for and most eloquent on, uh, which is the narrative trade. You've talked about salience. Walk us through that thesis. So this really started, I mean, it's actually always been a factor in the market, but essentially retail or what I like to call the low information investor is primarily driven by these behavioral impulses. I'm not saying all retail investors are like this, but with the rise of easy trading platforms like Robinhood, you see certain anomalous factors. Like there was a paper about a year ago, really it noticed two effects with Robinhood stocks. One, that the ones that showed up on the top 50, or I think it was top 10, would have anomalous returns. And another, that the ones that were being you know, purchased in bulk would have anomalous reversals the next month. Mm. So you see this clustering of these, let's say 10 to 50 stocks. I mean, last year, we saw the rise of Tesla, we saw Nvidia as a major one, we saw Neo and Palantir. All of these were driven by retail speculation, which has only grown both due to the stimulus. A lot of people have, as some people call it, YOLO'd their money on these call options, on these plays from stimulus. But even more so, this gamification and just general ennui during the COVID pandemic let a lot of new investors into the stock market. And you can see this pretty dramatically. This is not even you know controversial from just the downloads of Robinhood and Futu, which is the Chinese Robinhood. Essentially, you know, a lot of new investors, including people you know in my age bracket, especially, were driven into the market, pumped by this idea of easy money from you know these storybook stocks, as I call it. It's so interesting, and you're so eloquent about these points. Thank like- you. Walk us through uh, the thesis specifically. These meme stocks, these narrative stocks have certain characteristics that you've identified and written about at length. 
Yeah, so I mean, one of the most poignant I would say recently was GameShop. I mean, you saw this with AMC as well. You saw it to a lesser extent with BlackBerry and Nokia during the first great GameShop run of January. Essentially, there were three characteristics I talked about in my post. One was this idea of a catalyst, which for GameShop at various points was earnings, this idea of Ryan Cohen going to the helm, the founder of Chewy, to really turn in this dying brick-and-mortar shock into this global e-commerce behemoth in gaming. You also see humor as a major one. So GameStop was funny. AMC was funny because it was... I have been pretty vocal about this on Twitter, but according to the last earnings, their shareholder equity is actually negative. So when you're buying a share on AMC, it it's actually worth less than nothing. So in a lot of cases, these stocks have also a sentimental attachment to people. You didn't see this as much on the Neo or Palantir side. I was more caught up in this idea of futurism from the Tesla angle. But in the most recent ones, a lot of these stocks are pretty memorable to the average investor. So they don't really need to know about the specifics about how the business is doing, really this idea of fundamentals. It's more twofold. One, do I know it previously? So, I mean, everybody, at least everybody who grew up in America has some idea of what GameStop was even before this. Right. And do other people I know, are they buying it? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, you talk about brand recognition and nostalgia as a major driver of these narratives. Yeah. So, I mean, we saw this especially recently, this idea of these beaten down retailers being bought by people for two twofold reasons. One, this idea of a new like internet age transformation. So that really applied to like BlackBerry and Nokia and GameStop, of course, and even more so this idea of short pain. So one of the biggest drivers of this narrative trade, at least at the core, was this idea of, you know, F the hedges, there's a ton of short interest, we want to try to cause a short squeeze. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that, because you're involved, you like read all of this stuff that's being posted on these boards. You understand a little bit about the psychology of these investors. Tell us a little bit more about that, because I think that's an absolutely fascinating point. So I would say from at least my research, there's probably one of the largest drivers is this idea of nihilism, in the sense that Everybody knows the market is rigged against you, especially as a retail investor at this point. And it's really this idea of going down or making a lot of money. So in the sense of these investors are pretty price and flexible in their positions and that they will hold even if they're pretty highly down. I mean, if you've been on Wall Street bets since the beginning, essentially, the subreddit would actually glorify losses even more than gains. So you'd see like, there was a famous story of this guy, Irony Man, who posted triumphantly, I think it was about two years ago, opening box spreads on Robinhood and was like, this is free money. And everybody was like, no, you have assignment risk. You're going to lose a lot of money. I think he ended up with like a negative like $50,000 loss before the end of it. And it became stuff of legends. There was another one where this guy bet on Apple earnings, bet the wrong way. And he's kind of memorable 
memorialized forever as the GOV video. So you have these investors who are okay with losing money. They're not balancing a portfolio, let's say, like more institutional investors. This is really more just a step up from going to the casino. And I mean, you even have in this parlance that people treat it like a casino. So in this sense, you have a lot of people betting money with this idea that they will probably lose it, but they may make a lot of money. And the reason I guess I would call it nihilistic is in my generation's case, so a lot of these retail investors who are just joining are pretty much in the 20 to 38 bracket. They do not have much hope on the economy mm. or global warming or you know the job market. And it's really this idea of I will die or get rich. And I would rather die trying doing this and let's say burn some money than not take a chance here. Yeah, that's fascinating. It, it almost sounds like uh, in a way that the culture is embracing like non-economic actors. It's not a bad thing to lose money because you're fighting in this battle, which is absolutely fascinating. You talk about this uh, in the context of the hero's journey uh, borrowed from Joseph Campbell. Tell us a little bit about that thesis. So one of the driving you know, factors that I identified when talking about salience is this basal connection to a human emotion. One of the most prominent myths you know, culturally is the hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell identified the monomyth, where this pretty much trope has been factored into so many cultural hearts, like the Odyssey, for example, is a major one. You see it in other religious texts. And there are some interesting parallels to the current GameStop saga. For instance, you have Deep Fucking Value, also known as Keith Gill, who really presents this hero to a lot of people in this journey of the GameStop stock. We saw it pretty recently when GameStop actually went down to 40, and then during the hearing, Keith Gill was completely defiant, and then the day after, literally said he doubled his position. We see it through the intervention of these kind of mystical, you know, I wouldn't say otherworldly, but on a different level, actors like Michael Burry and Ryan Cohen, who are billionaires who seemingly are aiding the retail cause. And we see that, you know, the villains in this narrative, which were really the hedge funds and the market makers. And what's interesting is if you were around in the early 2000s, I can't really say this because I was like five years old back then, but we're seeing this vilification again of market makers and the hedge funds. And that seems to be a prominent angle in a lot of these asset bubbles, because even though, let's say, shorting might be a pretty healthy concept in the stock market, we're seeing it being vilified. So you see these short sellers like Citron and Hindenburg publishing these pieces on these companies and saying, hey, they've strayed so far from fundamental values or in Hindenburg's case, for instance, they were recently posted on Lordstown and people had took that as a sign to buy, even though their evidence against Lordstown was pretty damning. You know, Lily, one of the things that's just absolutely fascinating about your take on this is obviously you've got a great sense of this narrative of understanding this demographic and understanding the way they think from a psychological perspective that I think many of our uh, subscribers haven't really heard before. But in addition to this analysis of the psychology, you are also, of course, probably first and foremost, intensely quantitative uh, in your view of markets. Uh, your background is, I believe, in bioinformatics. Uh, which is like math and biology and all kinds of things that I wasn't smart enough to study at university. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, about the indicator that we talked about at the beginning of the show, the NOPE index. 
So one of the things I look at most heavily, because I actually am the derivatives trader, at least in my spare time, I would say, is this idea of options wrecking the market. So actually, there's a chart. If you look at the chart um, on the screen, what we're seeing is an increase in call option volume um, and actually put option volume since last year that has just dwarfed anything we've seen at least since the early 2000s. I think this it has a twofold cause. One, people are more likely to buy options now due to the impact of you know these zero transaction brokers like Robinhood. And two, with the COVID pandemic, a lot of people saw the market just keep going up. So a lot of these new investors, instead of starting with, let's say, normal stocks in this idea of speculation, they move straight to these gamified option trading platforms like Robinhood, and that becomes effectively their drug of choice. So I don't want to you know, vilify retail here as well, because this game is not just retail. A lot of hedge funds and high-frequency firms have moved into the option space as well, too. And you're not going to see, for instance, the volumes that we're seeing just being caused by retail. But essentially, my indicator, the net options pricing effect, really looks at the weight of the options market on the underlying market. So in this case, if you look at the nopechart.com, which I you know show above, this is actually this note metric on SPY, which is an ETF for the S&P 500. And what it looks at is that when you have an option, the market maker, the person who has to sell it to you, has to hedge it because otherwise they have directional risk and you know they could owe a lot of money due to the convexity of the option payout. So you buy the option. The options, the market maker that you're buying it from has to take the opposite side of the position. They have to hedge that. And this is when we talk about gamma, why it's so important mm -hmm. to understand. Yeah. So, so what's interesting in the case of the NOPE indicator is we're actually looking at delta. And the reason for this is that delta essentially represents this idea of how many shares you need to buy or sell to effectively hedge out your market risk of the option. So gamma in this case, or VANA, these are more dynamic um, I would say they're the dynamic derivatives. So they're actually the change in delta in response to how much the underlying is moving or how volatility is changing. But at the end of the day, delta is really what's the representation of the liquidity being removed from the underlying or you know given to it essentially. So if let's say the market makers are let's say their position is, let's say, negative 500,000 delta, that means essentially they are going to be shorting 500,000 shares of whatever stock you're looking at. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. And so, Lily, for uh, people who don't have your background in the options market, let's bring it together. What have you seen from your analysis of NOPE, and how does it play into this broader narrative that you've been talking about uh, with salience and narrative stocks? So NOPE is interesting. I mean, it's a mean reverting metric, and I do want to, you know, alert your readers that there are a lot of simplifying assumptions being made in the metric we have public. For instance, you know, 
in general on the S&P, market makers are short puts, long calls. This is kind of known as the index carry trade. What we've noticed, for instance, though, is that there's pretty regular intervals where when this indicator gets to a certain value, it marks an intraday reversal. It isn't perfect by any means, and you can actually see today that it flagged at the end of the day a certain position as bullish when you know we ended up dipping another about 0.7 you know uh, dollars on spy but it's very interesting that you know from our research this indicator has been pretty predictive of the next day direction since i would say about 2018 even more interesting is that it seems to track the s&p's price movement in today which one could say for instance delta has price sensitivity so if let's say the market makers are short 50 delta, we expect them to be short more delta as the price moves down, so against them due to gamma. But what's more interesting is we don't see this tracking behavior pre-Volmageddon. So one thing I talk about a lot on Twitter is that at least on the S&P, I would say that the market dynamics have changed dramatically since early 2018. Yeah. Lily, do you have any data uh, that suggests how close the correlation is between the NOPE index and next day change? So it really is dependent on the directionality as well as uh, the magnitude of NOPE. We've seen some pretty good evidence that it is very predictive, especially at high positive magnitude. So it tends to, weirdly enough, predict next day being red. It plays really well with, let's say, these gamma momentum indicators. There was a recent paper by Andrea Barbon called Gamma Fragility, which documents this intraday reversal effect in gamma due to dealer imbalance. And you know we're currently trying to productionize this indicator along with other signals into these trading models. Yeah, I'm up on uh, nopechart.com right now, and I noticed that it's uh, it's uh, it's refreshing. In uh, like every five minutes, I see a new tick, and it actually prints a new change. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean this year has been phenomenal with it. I mean one of the things that really drew people was in January. I used to call these reversions because essentially we use this as a mean reverting indicator because of right. how it seems to track the S&P and certain other properties. And it would be pretty predictive. I mean, we would see something when I was actually calling out live, it would revert somewhere around 14 out of 16 times. Historically, it has variable performance. It does tend to like these periods that are mean reverting, which tend to be higher volatility periods. But you know, my hunch is that we're seeing these option dynamics play out at a larger scale, and I do not see that this is going away anytime soon. So Lily, we started out with the narrative and Joseph Campbell, and we've walked our way through options math. Uh, as we come close to the end of this show, what are your final thoughts uh, for our viewers? What would you like them to take away from this conversation? I would say a lot of my you know, background is in the day trading community. I started as a trader with other people and I saw someone who could wipe out. This is a very difficult market to trade. And I think a lot of people, you know, one of the things that I say repeatedly on Twitter is it's totally cool to buy garbage in this case of these SPACs or these meme stocks that may stray way above, let's say, the nav for SPACs. But you always need to understand that you are buying garbage. And essentially, we're seeing that 
the market is pulling away from a lot of these narrative shocks, at least temporarily, you have to make sure that you're always aware of the sensitivity of your movements. In a lot of cases, these are really just very long beta plays. So as long as the market is going up, you may see these memes continue to go up. But you need to be careful that when you buy garbage, you're pretty aware that you don't convince yourself that it's not garbage. So be careful, um, you know, play it safely. I would say this is not a banner-friendly market currently. And I'm excited to see what happens. And maybe if this is it, maybe the bubble will pop soon. Probably not, I would say. But can't predict the future. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Lily Frankis, thanks for joining us. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.